I've got a fairly uh, bleak view of where things are going. And actually, it's an interesting thing you're saying that the path to net zero is is probably more scary than what it's meant to be dealing with because net zero in so many ways, clearly the agenda is one of control being exerted across our lives and you know, removal of freedoms, intrusion by government, dictates about what you can do, what you can't do, what you can buy, what you have access to. So I, I agree with that. I think it is quite scary. Welcome to the Baseload Podcast. My name is Ben Beatty. I'm an engineer and I'm sceptical of many things, not least the direction our energy policy is going. The opening clip was the distinctive tones of one Campbell Newman, who I had the pleasure of speaking to recently. We'll get to the rest of Campbell's interview in a future episode. Today, we're going to drop in on Mr. Daniel Free Electrons Westerman, head of the Australian Energy Market Operator. When the sun shines and the wind blows, uh, the grid gets flooded with free electrons. I couldn't let that pass without the goat. Listeners might recall my chat with Aidan Morrison, who has been unravelling the assumptions and outcomes of the CSIRO's GenCost report. He's expanded this work to capture AMO's integrated system plan and what a jolly saga has unfolded, with, to date, three separate articles in The Australian by Claire Lehman. A personal response in the form of a letter to the editor of The Australian from the lead author of GenCost, Paul Graham. A media release by AMO a segment in a renewables-friendly podcast, a surprise John Kehoe piece in the Australian Financial Review, as well as detailed Twitter and LinkedIn posts with replies and comments in the hundreds. And not to mention some Spectator Australia articles by yours truly. Summarising all that is a challenge, but let's have a crack. But first, what does our Climate and Energy Minister, Mr Bowen, have to say about it? Here he is, complete with doom music. The CSIRO, our scientific agency, and a EMO that runs our energy grid have done the work. Their analysis shows us that renewables are cheaper than coal, cheaper than gas, and much cheaper than nuclear. Mr Bowen's position is reminiscent of soldiers whose country has lost the war, they just don't know it yet. So they keep fighting the same battle and trying to kill each other for no point. Chris Bowen published another video yesterday and it's full of untruths. And Mr Bowen's opposition counterpart, energy spokesman Ted O'Brien, is saying what most of us are thinking, just more politely. He is claiming Labor is delivering cheaper electricity, despite Australians paying some of the highest prices in the world. And this is true. We have the Australian energy regulator pushing up the default market offer, which is the retail price cap, with the effect that we're really only competing with Germany and California for the top spot in the world energy price stakes. I wonder what similarities those countries have to Australia. Despite Australians paying some of the highest prices in the world, he insists his radical experiment of 82% renewables in the grid by 2030 will lower power bills. Lifting renewable energy to 82% of our energy grid is good for emissions, but also good for bills. Reducing bills is secondary to reducing emissions. The CSIRO, our scientific agency, and a EMO that runs our energy grid have done the work. Their analysis shows us that renewables are cheaper than coal, cheaper than gas, and much cheaper than nuclear. Despite CSIRO itself confirming such data excludes the cost of transmission, storage, and firming all the way through to 2030. We've all heard the Liberal Party saying it, that renewables are pushing up energy prices. If renewables are so cheap, they say, why are energy prices so high? Well, yeah. Why are energy prices so high? 
And when they say energy, yes, they should be saying electricity. Coal and gas are a lot more expensive than renewables. Uh, says who? The CSIRO, our scientific agency, and a EMO that runs our energy grid have done the work. Uh, what work have the CSIRO and AEMO done on the cost of renewables? Despite CSIRO itself confirming such data excludes the cost of transmission, storage and firming all the way through to 2030. I can tell you that Aidan Morrison's work to date has shown that the GenCost and Integrated System Plan exclude a hell of a lot more than just transmission, storage and firming. What else does Mr Bowen have to say about the cost of electricity? We already know from the International Energy Agency that the Ukraine war has caused 90% of the energy price rises around the world. This caused the price of coal and gas, which was already high, to skyrocket. Chris Bowen is the energy minister for one of the most advanced countries in the world, Australia. He has a country with some of the best and easiest to access natural resources on the planet, resources that will ensure energy security if we choose to use it. A country that just a short time ago had some of the lowest electricity prices in the world, but is now suffering under some of the highest, the highest ever. And what does he do about it? He makes a video. Even worse, the video Mr. Bowen's made, with access to the top echelons of bureaucracy, CEOs of energy companies, basically every resource available. And he's contradicted himself terribly. On one hand, he holds up CSIRO and AEMO with their reports, claiming renewables are the cheapest new energy. Then on the other, he blames Putin. Well, which is it, Mr Bowen? If renewables really do provide cheap electricity and energy security, how can we be so exposed to the geopolitical machinations of Eastern Europe? Now, that's partly unfair. I mean, Mr Bowen has only been in the job 18 months or so, but he's not making it better. He's making it much, much worse. And he seems unable to reverse course out of the hole he's dug. He's not in that hole alone, though. The head of every energy bureaucracy is in that same hole. And of course, that's the main problem. These egos cannot admit they have been wrong, because it will be the end of their careers, and when the public realise they've been duped for so long and so egregiously, the reputations of the people who led us down this path will be decimated. Forever. So to try and get a sense of what's actually going on, Daniel Westerman is the Chief Executive of the IEMO and he joins us now. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Patricia. Your latest report shows prices are still high, but market volatility has dropped and renewable generation is up. Can you firstly just explain the situation we are currently in? Sure. Well, what we're seeing over the last 12 months is a real calming of energy markets since the disruption of um, uh, the energy markets last winter. Um, you're right, prices are down by 59% um, since last winter. Wholesale prices are down, not retail prices. They are up. Uh, but are still historically high. The drivers of those uh, changes in the prices are really threefold. Uh, the first is that coal-fired power stations, which still supply about 60% of Australia's energy, um, are down um, because coal prices are down. As I've said before, and I'll keep saying, there are 15 coal-fired power stations in the national electricity market, and only a few of them are subject to export prices. The rest of them have their own coal mine, therefore they are not subject to any fluctuation in the price of coal at all, and therefore their effect on the market price is negligible. The second thing is that we've had more coal plant availability, so it's mm. been there when we needed it. So now more coal keeps the price down. Um, and then the third is that we've seen more and more renewables come into the system. 
There can't be much to all those reports of underinvestment and more investment needed and not enough renewables and very slow investment in renewables and more government intervention needed and renewable energy targets. And those renewables, as we know, really do push prices down. How? When? We keep getting told that more wind and solar will magically lower some of the highest retail electricity prices in the world. Haven't seen it yet. Uh, When the sun shines and the wind blows, uh, the grid gets flooded with free electrons. (laughs) Not at fixed price contracts, they don't. And that pushes prices right down. These guys really have their lines down pretty well. They say it with such a straight face. So does this mean we'll continue to see prices drop year on year? What it does is it reinforces the need for Australia to continue to invest in our energy transition. Such a predictable response and utterly devoid of any common sense, logic or evidence. We know that the uh, old coal-fired power stations are closing down and that the cheapest replacement is firmed renewable energy, 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 firmed renewable... No, it doesn't get better, no matter how many times you say it. Uh, Now, um, that cheap firmed renewable energy um, does need to get built. In fact, uh, we need to triple uh, the amount of renewable energy in the system between now and 2030. We do not need to triple renewable energy generation in the system by 2030. That's an arbitrary target driven by ideology. And then triple it again out to 2050. (laughs) (laughs) Triple it and then triple that. That's a, that's a squared function. Some might say exponential, but not cheap. Uh, and that renewable energy does need to be connected with transmission. Uh, it's being built in different places around Australia where the mm. sun shines the brightest and the wind blows the strongest. Said with such a straight face. Mm. Are we transforming fast enough? Well, we have a plan. Why do we want a bureaucracy captured by the Green Left central planning at critical electricity system? Um, every two years, um, AMO produces an integrated system plan. It has our logo on it, but it's the uh, result of a huge amount of collaboration with over 1,500 stakeholders. How many transmission companies, bureaucracies, renewable energy developers are on that list of 1,500 stakeholders? And that plan gets us through the energy transition reliably and to a net zero system by 2050. And the cost of this is nowhere to be found. Uh, We would see that um, investment over the last six months certainly hasn't been fast enough, but there is still time. uh, And what we really do need to do is to continue to invest in renewable energy, in firming, so batteries, pumped Mm. hydro and flexible gas generation, and get the transmission built. Um, And there's over 10,000 kilometres of transmission that's been identified. But it's going to cost a lot less and we're building heaps of it, right? The investment over the last six months hasn't been fast enough. Why? A number of challenges on investment um, at the moment. One is that we're part of a big global energy transition um, and other countries around the world have the same need for um, everything from wind turbines and solar panels to uh, transmission equipment, transformers um, and uh, poles and wires. Uh, The demand overseas is high and it's sometimes hard to get parts. It's also um, prices have gone up. Uh, And so we do need to uh, find ways to work 
work through that to continue to build because our coal plants are closing down and we mm. do need to replace that energy to make sure that our homes and businesses have uh, power when we need it. The lights go on when you flick the switch, right? Well, that's one of the biggest loads of goat that I've heard in a long time. There was some concern that the closure of the Liddell coal-fired power station in the New South Wales Hunter region would cause costs to rise, but that hasn't happened. No, I think Liddell was a great case example of how we can gracefully close our coal-fired generators um, at the right time. And uh, Liddell had uh, plenty of notice given. The market responded by investing in renewable energy and firming capacity. I saw one report that said New South Wales had only closed the deal on 347 megawatts of wind and solar. And that's less than only one of the derated Liddell units. Um, And um, when the plant closed down, uh, the market didn't really even blink. And I think that stands as a bit of a template for how we're able to gracefully retire our old coal-fired generators because uh, it's not just about energy markets but it's also about the employees, the people, the communities, um, and I think they need that level of certainty as well. The humanity is oozing all over the microphone there in the studio. What about other coal-fired power stations scheduled to close this decade? There's there's some expectation uh, for the Vale Point and Araring plants. They may have to keep running beyond 2030 because the renewable transition can't keep up. Oh, no, she did. Oh, yes, she did. Well, each coal plant closure is obviously a decision for um, for the owner. In Araring's case, that's Origin Energy. Um, and they will make that decision based on um, economics as well as whether they can provide energy to their, uh, their customers. But what we do have is a huge pipeline of investment um, that's waiting to happen in Australia's energy grid. In fact, the pipeline of potential investments is around three times the capacity of Australia's grid. So the projects are ready. We're just need to get them um, invested in and built in time. Mm. Do you have confidence that we will? No, she did! Yes, she did! No, she did! Yes, she did! Be right, that's all! All right, take it easy. I'm optimistic, yes. What needs to change to ensure that it's not just optimism, but it's an ironclad, you know, we're sure it will happen? I'm pretty sure the only way it's going to happen is by expanding the renewable energy target. Something like 160 terawatt hours, maybe, corresponding to 82% of the national electricity market. It's only a matter of time. Well, the first thing is we do have a plan and, um, and we, we do need to follow that plan, uh, invest as quickly as we can. AEMO runs the market. It doesn't invest in anything. Its primary purpose for existing is to balance the frequency and it uses the price to do that. That's it. Um, industry uh, working together. Um, So the way we sort of navigated through the challenges of last winter uh, was really... um by, through collaboration, through openness um, and uh, real collaborative work. You suspended the market. You turned it off. That's not collaborative. And I think that's both governments, it's industry, and, of course, us as the market mm. operator. So, so it's real openness, transparency, collaboration, but the critical thing is for investments to get made, um, and uh, that's what we want to see happening. Except you want to triple the market by 2030 and then triple it again by 2050 grow all the transmission lines by 10,000 kilometres, and this is all going to be cheaper. Give me a break. Patricia, take us to the farmers. Farmers across regional Australia, particularly a group of farmers in Victoria, say transmission lines proposed to run through their properties are disruptive 
and there hasn't been enough consultation with them, are you leaving them in the dark? Or oh, a sneaky electricity blackout pun there from Patricia. Well, Australia does need investment in its transmission system. Um, uh, The old transmission system that currently exists uh, was built 70 years ago to connect the large coal-fired power stations in the Hunter Valley and the Latrobe into the cities. So what you're saying is that that transmission has been fit for purpose for 70 years and is sitting there going to be, what, underutilised now? Are we building any new factories where this new transmission's going? Are we building any new towns? Do we have a huge population increase moving to the regions? No, of course not. What we saw in the past was transmission connecting generators to loads based on the size of the loads and the future demand. What we're seeing now is a complete reversal of that, which is transmission installed for excess generation out in the middle of whoop whoop when no one wants it. Our new generation is being built in places where the sun shines the strongest and the wind blows the strongest, um, and that's not in the same places. And we do need that transmission to to be built to connect the new sources of energy to consumers. Actually, I think the evidence will show that wind and solar projects are competing for the best transmission resources, not the best wind and solar resources. I wonder what the farmers have to say about it. Now, Greg is from a small town in the Gladstone region in Queensland. His story is going to blow your mind. There are plans to build 2 million solar panels next to his property. It'll be the largest solar farm in Australia. And to put this into perspective, to get home, Greg will have to drive through 9 kilometres of solar panels. Greg is on the line right now. Greg, good morning to you. How are you, Ben? I'm all right. Holy moly, how big's this thing going to be? Mate, it's crazy. Um... $1.5 $1.5 billion project um, that only requires council approval. You were listening yesterday to Stan Moore and you thought, all right, well, that's not a knife. This is a knife. Mate, seven, he was 700 hectares. This is 2,700 hectares. Um, wrap your head around this. Imagine a football field yeah. times, it, times it by 4,000. So 4,000 football fields. That's the sort of scale we're talking. I don't think people realise what's going on, mate. When is this happening? Mate, approval this year, it says even on their own website, being built starting next year with a two-year build. You've been told, forget about it, there's nothing you can do to stop it. That's basically it, mate, suffering your jocks. And and it's approved by council. Council can approve a solar farm that's 4,000 footy fields in size. That's it, mate. That's exactly right. The town planner in their infrastructure department that signs that off, they just assess it against the code. They might whack a few conditions on it. Um, I guess the thing that really is blowing my mind is it's 70 kilometres from the Great Barrier Reef and it straddles the Calliope River, which runs directly into the southern Great Barrier Reef. It's just, they're not subject to reef regulations. It's just, it's just out of control. And the mob who's building this thing is called European Energy. They've never had a solar farm in Australia, but they're about to have the largest in the country. That's it, mate. I put that question. We had a three-hour meeting with the project manager. He didn't want to answer the question, but eventually we got it out of him. They've only built stuff in Europe, and this is their first project in Australia. But it's destroying us. Um, As Stan said yesterday, they've had advice 30 to 50% devaluation. We've had advice at least 30%, if not more. So you know what happens if you lose 30% equity. If you owe more than you own, game over. And we don't get compensated at all. It's, It's destroying us, destroying our family, destroying the district. It's a beautiful little valley. 
Um, we're not against solar, and I think that's the message is just build them in the right place. The communities who are affected um, by that new transmission do have um, legitimate concerns that need to be um, heard um, and, and I think are being heard. Now, Westerman here is obviously mentioning transmission, but these, these solar farms and wind farms are going to have a, probably a greater impact. I mean, the transmission just allows these things to connect. No one's going to build these solar farms and wind farms without the transmission in place in the first place. So, yeah. Plenty more to come in that area. I've been out to Western Victoria. I've seen farms where um, transmission and new renewable energy coexist with traditional farming. We've heard from landowners opposing HumeLink. In Tasmania, wind turbines have been killing endangered eagles. And today we want to look at the impact of solar. Stan Moore is a farmer near Goulburn. He runs sheep and cattle with his wife Anne. And right now he's fighting back against a giant solar farm in his backyard. One of them, just 150 metres from his bedroom. The developers are BP. They want to build 740,000 solar panels in an area called Gundary Plains. Each panel, five metres high. The project will cover 700 hectares of farming land and locals have a range of concerns including the impact on wildlife, the risk of bushfires and the impact on their land values. Stan Moore, the farmer, is on the line right now. Morning, Stan. Uh, Good morning, Ben. Now, look, I've had a look at the images of what's about to be built near your place. Can you just describe it to people? The size is breathtaking. Well, um, to put it into perspective, 700 uh, hectares is seven square kilometres, which is probably of the order of uh, nearly six times the size of the Sydney CBD. So Uh, it's all going to be covered with solar panels? Well, uh, apart from there is a a creek that runs through and a few tributaries. They're they're not allowed to build in those. Uh, They are actually creeks that take water to... um, They're part of the Sydney water catchment. Uh, But the whole 700 uh, hectares will be covered with these five-metre-high panels. Okay, this is six times the size of Sydney CBD, and we're not talking about 7,000 solar panels or 70,000, 740,000 solar panels. Absolutely. This is one, when it was proposed, it was the largest uh, solar farm proposal in New South Wales. Uh, I think there is, um, there's another one on the Gundary Plains, which is a bit bigger, that has just been proposed. So what's the compensation like that you're going to get? Well, uh, when they started talking to us, they said, oh, no, we're not compensating. We haven't budgeted for it. Uh, We've been pressuring them for it. And um, they're they're now thinking that they're going to come back and have and talk to us about neighbour agreements, which is basically, you know, how much money they're prepared to give us. But it's really not about the money. This is about destroying a rural vista, the rural landscape, turning the historic uh, Gundary Plains into an industrial estate. The Central Behemoth Plan. Beyond these trees and just a few hundred metres away from Tom's family home is where the Australian energy market operator and the Victorian government with Osnet plan to build a small section of massive transmission lines with 85 metre tall towers. So it was devastating to be honest. We were... uh... We'd poured the slab for the new house. Obviously, Osnet and the state government had, had already 
planned their route through our area, but no one bothered to tell us through the whole permit process and all the rest. And then we, um, we put, put the slab down and we received a letter and realised something was going on. I've also sat around the kitchen table with, uh, with uh, communities who are affected by the proposition that new transmission uh, might come. And those concerns, I think, um, th they're obviously genuine and we do need to work through them um, honestly, openly it, and transparently. Yeah, we certainly do because you need to bring your community with you. Yeah, they hate it. Across the country, landholders are battling the prospect of new above-ground high-voltage transmission lines that authorities say are critical to transporting the influx of renewable energy coming online around the nation. People are really worried about their ability to live in their homes, their, their ability to run their farming businesses, you know, the impact that it will have on the community and the damage it will have to the native environment. And it's not just transmission lines either. You've got the wind turbines and the massive solar farms and I think once the public and the community understand the extent of the plans and how many of these projects are going to afflict the countryside there's going to be some significant pushback and I think we've only just started seeing what that pushback looks like it's going to get a whole lot worse for Mr Westerman and the renewable energy and transmission developers. Is there any um, plan to build them underground instead? That's something I know that happens um, in Germany, Switzerland. Look, unfortunately, uh, undergrounding is about 10 times the cost of overhead lines. Um, it might be a solution in small, specific areas, but for the vast distances in Australia, it, it's just not economic. Daniel, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Patricia. Okay, let's talk about GenCost. At the start of the show, I listed a bunch of different media and content creators that raised Aidan Morrison's criticism of GenCost. One of these is a podcast called Let Me Sum Up, hosting a small panel of somewhat insider folks that discuss how good renewables are, how bad climate change is, and some other, you know, to be honest, irrelevant stuff. But now and then they pick up something worth a listen, and I was interested to hear how they dealt with GenCost. First, to give you a flavour of the, uh, the other stuff, Here's a clip of them talking about the recently released intergenerational report. That 0.9% uh, lower services sector output by 2063 was the outer limits of the impact range for a scenario where global warming's on track to exceed four degrees by 2100, which is the kind of scenario where, like, the far end of it, you get scientist-type people, not economists or political scientist type people saying, well, we don't understand how human civilization continues at, at that level of warming. Exactly. It's at four degrees of warming. You don't have a service sector. You're all fighting each other with knives over a very limited water supply. Yes. And so you don't have a lot of time to think about lower productivity at your local coffee shop because your local coffee shop is not there. Mm. There is no such thing as a barista on a dead planet, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. There is a tendency for people discussing electricity and energy to refer to extremely implausible climate alarmist predictions as if they are a possibility. At first glance, this may be construed as pessimism, but I think it's the opposite. I think these people are secretly hoping for the worst possible climate outcome because then their unscientific push for unending construction of wind and solar will be justified, in their minds at least. This theory holds up when we consider how optimistic the same people are when attempting to perform and analyse modelling such as GenCost. They desperately want the GenCost outcomes to be true, so tipping the scales is ignored, or worse, celebrated. On the other hand, I see myself as an optimist. 
I think that climate change is entirely natural and that it's weird and unscientific to try and control it. Humans will adapt where we need to, as we always have. Take the dikes around Holland as an example. Human emissions are small compared to the natural variations in emissions, so any attempt we make to control the weather by reducing the emissions is destined to fail, completely and utterly. Emissions reduction policies destroy economies. Take the deindustrialization of Germany with Australia close behind. What do we have in common? Pig-headed, close-minded fascination with emissions reduction at all costs, regardless of the effect on people. And that's why I criticise those pushing this false transition, such as the hosts of this podcast. Their ideas are indefensible, their analysis is amateurish and misleading. The entire 65-minute podcast, titled Gen Cost or Gen Con, fails to mention the single largest problem, the sunk cost assumption. This is one of the virtues of the pod, being forced to sit down and spend an afternoon reading the thing. Well, and I'm deducing from the Twitterati drama that's been going on around this that a lot of the the arguments kind of in and around this are from where people pick up the levelised cost of electricity. Let's start from the beginning. It's 19th of July, 2023, and Aidan Morrison, a data scientist, posts a thread on Twitter with an opener guaranteed to garner interest. This graph from CSIRO's latest GenCost is probably the most important graph for Australia's energy transition. It underpins the belief that wind and solar are cheap, even accounting for storage, firming, transmission, etc. And it's completely bogus. A few days later, on the 24th of July, I reached out and we did our baseload podcast interview. So the thing that I think that everyone thinks GenCost is doing is levelised full system cost of energy because the levelised cost of energy just incorporates the life cycle and financing and capacity factors, that sort of stuff, right? So defenders of GenCost, they would say that GenCost has not strictly claimed to do the levelised full system cost uh, of energy. If, even if they were technically clear on page 50 or something like that, the way that everyone has interpreted what it says including the politicians, including AEMO, including policymakers, including every damn newspaper, is, is the way that suggests, oh, electricity prices will get lower in the end. So definitely going on the right path. The end will end up, like, you know, at a cheaper place. And so and that is what this, support, this method does not support. 28th of July, 2023, sees the first of Claire Lehman's opinion pieces published in The Australian, titled Why Our Energy Transition Needs a Price Tag alerting a wider audience to the sunk cost assumption that underpins CSIRO's favourable outcomes for renewables. The next day, Paul Graham defended his GenCost report in a letter to the editor, but was forced to admit the sunk cost criticism was correct. After a flurry of social media activity, with Aidan definitely coming out on top, Claire Lehman was again published in The Australian on the 4th of August 2023, titled Renewable Energy Costs Not an Exact Science for CSIRO little bit of sarcasm there, highlighting that the criticism was correct. This prompted AMO to publicly defend their work in a media release on the 7th of August, claiming that renewables are the lowest cost system. Even the renewable lobby's flagship blog, Renew Comedy, joined in on the 8th of August with a predictable Giles Parkinson headline, AMO slams Murdoch media campaign that claims renewables are not low cost. Unfortunately for them, this triggered Aiden who by 15th of August had turned his attention to the ISP and initiated another public unravelling with the attention-grabbing post. I can't keep a lid on this any longer. Remember, AMO released this in response to the second article from Claire Lehman. Reflects whole-of-system costs? Right. So I opened the 60 megabyte zip file and found the relevant 
workbook and sheets. The ensuing analysis kicked off another round of social media bickering, garnering more attention from all corners of the energy debate. By 31st of August, Emeritus Professor Alex Corum had a piece published in the Australian titled, The Government is Gambling Our Energy Future on a Flawed Plan, forcing renowned and fierce renewables defender Graham Redfern to take aim at the Murdoch media in The Guardian on the 1st of September. Redfern took umbrage at Aiden and anybody else daring to challenge the combined bureaucratic Goliath that is a CSIRO and AMO, including David Carlin's submission that gen cost leaves a $62 billion gap for consumers to pick up later. Redfern enlisted the help of Tennant Reid, a political scientist with the AI group specialising in climate change and energy. By now we are five weeks into this unfolding narrative, and on 1st of September, Claire Lehman's third piece lands in The Australian, titled Australians Deserve Honesty and Transparency When It Comes to Energy Policy Decisions. I'm pretty sure that AMO and CSIRO by now have been forced, or cowed, into radio silence on these reports. I will be surprised if we hear anything more from them outside estimates under direct questioning by an inquisitive senator, or perhaps in a deeper inquiry. For me, I'll continue to follow Aidan's fun, poking holes in the indefensible, optimistically hoping this unholy edifice will get torn down and the ridiculous tale, you know, that blanketing the countryside in wind and solar and transmission lines and batteries and pumped hydro, is the lowest cost electricity solution for Australia. I'll be talking to Claire Lehman herself in a couple of weeks, and we'll revisit this saga then. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.